Good afternoon. It is Wednesday, the 6th of September, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, myself, Brian Gerrish. I'm delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson from the Netherlands. Uh, we also have our nursing correspondent, Debbie Evans, and we have a guest with us today who will be speaking about uh, banking and in particular Switzerland. Well, let's get kicked off uh, right away with the subject of uh, where are we? Uh, blood is the issue. Debbie, what have you got for us? Uh, blood. So giving blood saves lives, or does it? Um, the blood industry, as I'm calling this segment. So worldwide, 100 million donations are given every year. And of course, we know that blood donation is a sign of altruism. So Actually, let's just remember, too, that in the UK, nobody gets paid to donate blood, unlike in other countries. And just in case anybody's forgotten, in the UK, we are still investigating the hepatitis infected blood scandal. Now, this has been going on since the 1970s, uh, where blood victims are still waiting to receive £100,000 interim com uh, compensation. So there's a lot wrong with the blood industry. But I just have a little video, a very quick little video, to show what the NHS Blood Transfusion Service is actually asking of each one of us. Let's have a look. As a nation, we're a generous lot. You can say giving. It's in our blood, but you know what? It's blood we need more people to give to save lives. So come on, you giving types. I always lend a hand. Am I the giving type? Of course you're a giving type. I give my neighbor a lift. My guy, you give us all a lift. <laughs> I give this one dating advice. Does that count? Nah. We're definitely the type. Whatever giving type you are, we need your blood type. So come and join the thousands of us. Give them one hour to save up to three lives. Cheers. So one hour to save up to three lives. So let's go and have a look at the NHS blood and transplant website where it's not just your blood. Well, it is your blood that they want, but you have to remember that this service includes organ donation, tissue donation, platelet donation, cord blood bank, uh, British bone marrow registry and blood transfusion. So um, if we just slip to the next slide, there, already in blood transfusion centres, we've got extra measures for safety are still being taken. So already they're rolling out some mask mandates. But interestingly, this says at the beginning there, if you have had side effects from the vaccine, such as headaches, temperature, aches and chills, please wait until these symptoms have passed before donating. So I just highlighted that in red. Um, so if we just skip to the next slide, let's look at the board of the... Uh, NHS blood and transplant. As you can see there, Joe Farah. Now, Joe Farah is very heavily into prisons, probation, custody and locking people up. I'm not quite sure what relevance or how she's managed to get into the position she's in. And then if we look at Wendy Clark, she's been involved in Breast Cancer UK, BP, AstraZeneca, Thompson's Reuters. Now, I've only taken these top three characters from the board. So we've got Peter Wyman, Price Waterhouse Cooper, and CQC. So you can clearly see how the board is is operating. So I then I go and have a look at some of the questions that are being asked on the blood transfusion website. So here you go: the side effects of the vaccine. You should wait until forty eight hours after the jab. 
It also says there, can I give blood if I've had the COVID-19 vaccine? And I'm just going to let you freeze the screen for some of this because there's quite a bit of information. But the important ones that I've highlighted there are, if I'm vaccinated, will my donation transmit an infection to patients? It says, if you've been vaccinated, there is no evidence that your donation will transmit infection, but it may contain protective antibodies. Likewise, also, can a patient choose to receive blood from a donor who's received or has not received a COVID-19 vaccine? Basically, no, they can't. So where does your blood go? That was my next question, is where does it go? And if we look and we see that we've got some nice trusted messengers there, we've got Chanel's story and we've got Tasmin and Cameron's story telling us how grateful they are for your donation of blood. Do you sell my blood? Uh, no, but, and the but there is something that I've added, it seems that they are allowed to recover their costs. So that's a, a big paragraph there. So when it says, no, they don't sell our blood, I'm not sure that that's quite what it means. So approved organisations, they say that your blood can go to approved organisations. How can approved organisations use your blood? Well, they can use it for education and training, for laboratory diagnostic quality assurance, quality control, transfusion and transplantation, but also development of or use in the manufacture of medicinal products and medical devices, research and development for the purpose of improving health and patient outcomes. So do you know where your blood is going? Well, clearly on the website, it says, do blood donors know that their donations are being tested by the government at Porton Down? Did you know that? Did you consent to that? So I went to look at uh, the consent because that's a very important issue, the consent when you donate blood. So let's have a look at the consent form. Everything that you need to know before giving blood platelets or plasma. And it tells you how important it is to read the donor, um, the donor leaflet. So let's have a look at the donor leaflet because it's always important to go through the documents. So this is the donor consent for blood donation. But let's go into it a little bit deeper. So if you just skip to the next slide. Now there, we can see that it says there where I've highlighted, in some cases, we are unable to use your donation for direct transfusion, but it may be used for a number of other um, processes, including training, research, DNA studies and export. I'm not quite sure where your blood will be exported to, um, but I just want you to take note of, of that page and just freeze the screen because it also says that you keep, they keep records on donors for a maximum of th a minimum of 30 years. So just skip to the final sheet because I think actually this is probably one of the most important and almost threatening, I think, where it says when you're, when you're actually giving your consent to donate. So you understand that a sample of your blood will be kept for three years and in certain situations, the NHS blood transfusion service may test your blood again in the future if a new test comes along. But it also says, and I put it in the red box, I understand that failing to answer any question as fully as possible and to the best of my knowledge could lead to possible harm to me as a donor and or an unsafe donation, which could potentially cause patient harm or death. I mean, this is pretty strong. So my message is, do you know where your blood is going? And if you don't, 
maybe you'd like to do a bit more research. Okay, Debbie, thank you very much for that. It's always opaque, isn't it, to do with uh, pharmaceutical (laughs) products and medicine. Um, Alex, um, councillors and the government, what have you got? The heart of England, Northamptonshire, has seen uh, an increasing, uh, what should we say, the the next level of uh, police totalitarianism descend upon it. And not a regular member of the public either, but an elected representative uh, for the Conservative Party, which is supposed to represent the heart of England. Uh, So this is Anthony Stevens, as reported by The Telegraph. For those listening without video, it's Stevens with a V if you wish to research what's been going on. Mr. Stevens uh, is uh, being done for hate speech. Uh, Well, that's, I'm afraid, par for the course these days. But the new element, apart from the nasty arrest, uh, and there he is with his uh, family who had to witness this uh, this arrest, is that he had said precisely nothing in a technical sense. He had been a retweeter of other things. So uh, in one instance, uh, a fellow councillor of his in Northamptonshire, ironically enough, the only black man on the county council, Mr. Lawal, Uh, had been suspended the previous uh, month by the county conservative group on the council, uh, saying that he was not in agreement with LGBT pride as a Christian. And Councillor Stevens, who to my understanding is not uh, a particularly uh, known practicing Christian, but a free speech uh, enthusiast, he calls himself a free speech absolutist, retweeted a petition calling for Councillor Lawal to be restored to the Conservative Party. If you value free speech, he said, please sign and share. Now, he was confronted when he was arrested at home following a complaint about hate speech by Northamptonshire police constables who said, you've tweeted this. Why do you support the petition? That is a league or two beyond anything I have seen British police do before, including the notorious Hull policeman saying uh, when he was being recorded by an an ex-policeman whom he was interrogating at home, I need to check your thinking. Stevens then said he's a free speech absolutist, does not necessarily agree with Councillor Lawal or his view of Christianity on everything. Uh, But then he was pressed further. Do you agree that pride is a sin? Do you agree that LGBT is a sin? And he sensibly replied, uh, you could also be silent in such a situation, but a sensible reply if you're going to give one is what Councillor Stevens gave, which is it doesn't matter whether I agree with Mr Lawal said it or not. I believe he has the right to say it without having his life torn apart. Another tweet of interest to the police, continues the Telegraph, involved a Quran burning. Now, obviously, this is a lot more sensitive and fewer people would support such material on Twitter than would support the previous example. Uh, But here, this may may be the one that has led to um, his arrest under Section 19 of the Public Order Act, which is, having written nearly 40 years ago as law, that Public Order Act doesn't talk about religious hatred, much less hate speech or identity. It talks about stirring up racial hatred and he's been released on bail. So as with Judaism, where there's a question, is it a race, is it a religion or is it both? Uh, this is now being selectively applied to Islam as well, Brian. Uh, but problems don't stop there. In the neighbouring county of Leicestershire, in what I would personally regard, and it's the city of my birth, so I'm not, I'm not being prejudiced here, but I would regard it as the the, the, the corruptest city in England in a, in a long uh, uh, list of them, uh, but less well known than others, Leicester, the constituency of Leicester East, has had its entire constituency Labour Party suspended by the National Party, the National Executive Committee. This, of course, is the presumptive party of government uh, as of next year or the year after. Uh, This is because the last but one member of Parliament, Keith Vaz, was notoriously corrupt and was on video doing things with rent boys and drugs. He was replaced by a lady who is uh, fabulously thick, who's uh, dropped a lot of clangers, and Guido Fawkes, a specialist, 
website here is saying, of course, we all know that this is a glove bucket puppet for Mr. Vaz, but she got nominally kicked out of the Labour Party. The whole system in Leicester East seems to be fabulously corrupt. Uh, down in Hackney, uh, one of the inner London boroughs, the Evening Standard, New- London's uh, newspaper for the metropolitan area, reports that the mayor, Philip Glanville, uh, is posing here at a pro-Ukraine uh, party, a house party for Eurovision, which as most people know is in May. There's a problem with that date because he's posing there alongside Tom Dewey, a councillor on the borough council. But trouble is, not only had Dewey been elected to that position one week previously, uh, but two weeks before this 14th of May Eurovision event, uh, on the 29th of April, he had been arrested by the National Crime Agency, the closest thing Britain has to an FBI for sadistic uh, images of children, which he downloaded, and violent pornographic photos. Uh, they actually shared a house, these two men. And uh, when pressed about this, Mr. Glanville said, um, I was told of his arrest, but not the full extent of his charges. In a, and I shouldn't have been photographed at the event, but I did so not to draw attention to my knowledge of the situation. Hardly really credible. Uh, and so he's been suspended as mayor of Hackney. Finally, in this segment on things going wrong in British politics, we go up to the royal family. Vanity Fair, and I've chosen this, it will be in the show notes because it covers uh, some more of the primary reporting by the Daily Mail and the Telegraph. So follow the links through from this piece if you're in the show notes. Vanity Fair is reporting that the author, um, Andrew Lowney, uh, is uh, very annoyed uh, because there has been no change despite the new reign, the succession by Charles Charles III, to the old uh, rule, which is that freedom of information requests, uh, obviously journalists like him writing about the royal family want to know these, uh, they will not be honoured for the heir to the throne or above, so uh, the the king or queen or the heir to the throne, and for any other members of the royal family, including Prince Andrew, who of course was uh, second heir to the throne before the Queen's demise, uh, they won't be released for 105 years after the subject's birth. Uh, And this is, of course, rather interesting in a context where Prince Andrew seems to be chumming up again to the Prince and Princess of Wales, uh, perhaps not so much to his own brother, the current king, uh, but is coming back into the bosom of the royal family. But we're not going to get any freedom of information material on him. Yes, it's one rule for them and uh, another for us, clearly. Well, if there's problems in politics, there's always problems in the banking system. And uh, let's just have a a little recap of matters in Switzerland. Now, these have been sent across the UK column from Trevor Kitchen, who we've interviewed. This is a man who dared to challenge what was happening in the uh, Swiss franc trading markets. And uh, we've done a couple of very good interviews with Trevor. Uh, But this uh, material, uh, he's setting out um, AML opinion, anti-financial crime and financial crime compliance. And a headline here, opinion, why Switzerland is a haven for the world's biggest money launderers. And uh, if we just put a bit of meat on this. So uh, if you look at the text, a lot of this is blamed on kleptocracies like Russia and other former USSR Countries maneuvering illicit funds, cleverly digitized, infiltrating the Western financial systems. And the inference is almost that the Western systems are clean and it's those nasty Russians again. Um, This paragraph goes on to talk about uh, Danske Bank guilty for laundering 160 billion through the US banks. And then uh, other banks get mentioned like Standard Charter, HSBC and Goldman Sachs. They've all faced penalties. Uh, Here's another opinion why Switzerland is a haven for the world's biggest money launderers. 
And uh, in this uh, particular section here, it's talking about more um, fraud and a mere £230 million fraud is mentioned in an account belonging to the um, then husband of Olga Stepanova, a Russian tax official. So it's a heavy, heavy commentary on the Russians. And it goes on here um, talking that the Swiss prosecutor decided to freeze some funds, but actually release others. And um, this is comment on the new money laundering laws coming in. If the new rules are accepted, lawyers, accountants and other company consultants who set up trusts or holding companies or arrange real estate deals will also become subject to due diligent rules and reporting obligations. So it all sounds good. Um, now, Trevor highlighted, this isn't his quote, this is a quote he highlighted from the article, how the Swiss Attorney General's office introduced a mechanism awarding sophisticated money launderers, uh, awarding sophisticated money launderers, and how the Federal Criminal Court in Bellazona turned it into legal precedent. Now, any money launderer wishing to launder hundreds of millions or even billions through the Swiss financial system who gets caught by authorities can simply request the application of this proportional method as a legal precedence. Well, it all sounds pretty nice. We are stamping on criminality while it appears helping the criminals. Uh, Trevor, welcome to UK Column. Uh, tell us how you discovered this little opaque mess and what it really means. Well, uh, thank you for having me, um, Brian. It's nice to be here. Uh, what I've um, picked up on here with this money laundering, it's just that they're introducing in Switzerland. This mechanism is called proportional um, method of dealing with money laundering. And this is to analyze the amount of, it, it's a proportional method that the Swiss Attorney General has introduced, or let's say even got people to work on, to analyze the amount of money that's being laundered. And in fact, the, the Federal Criminal Court, which is based in the um, Italian part of Switzerland, in a place called Bellinzona, they have turned this, as, as you mentioned, into legal precedent. Uh, but before I go on, I would also like to say what you picked up on is they seem to be attacking just Russia. This doesn't apply just to Russia. This applies to all countries. But a lot of other countries have made um, leaps and bounds in um, getting rid of money laundering, and, but Switzerland seemed to be on another track altogether. Anyway, these legal precedents are normally used, and perhaps Alex could quote me on this or correct me if I'm wrong, used in common law. So it is seen that Switzerland is now, you know, which is all country, is picking with all systems. Anyway, on the proportion that they're using Switzerland, without too much detail, there is a link to the website AML, which stands for anti-money laundering, the Swiss logic is now to use this proportional method. So say, for example, you have a million dollars entering the system. For 
a many, many soldiering process. Yes, Brian, sorry. Uh, sorry, Trevor, I had to come in. Your audio is breaking up quite badly for some reason. Um, just try again and uh, uh, see if we get on. If not, I'll take the audience through some of your key points and uh, we'll invite people to join mm -hmm. us for extra after the news where you'll have longer to speak. But uh, just try again and see how we get on. Okay. So shall I start from... No. We've, we've still got a problem, I'm afraid, Trevor. So uh, okay. with... Uh, with your blessing, I'll just move the audience through some of your key points and uh, we'll see if we can rectify the sound and you will be with us for extra time and we can talk about this more. So these were okay. some... Thank you. These were some of the key points. So um, Trevor said recently he's come back to the point of enablers. Uh, these are law firms that disguise themselves as wealth management and family wealth uh, protectors. It, it is... It was a big business in Switzerland, and here are some of the stages of, uh, I've got to say, quote, wealth management, unquote. One, extraction into Switzerland. Swiss lawyers and lawmakers poach business by setting up structures. The business is to poach, plunder, launder money, avoid tax, etc. Two, wealth managers and family business wealth planners. Swiss bankers and lawyers entice foreign clients to deposit their funds in Switzerland's banks. Three, these wealth management law firms charge fees to assist in setting up uh, set up structures that protect clients from tax enforcement in the country of origin. Four, once set up, lawyers switch sides and assist the country of origin to have clients voluntarily disclose tax avoidance. That generates more fees. And lastly, Swiss law firms lost most of their money laundering tax, tax dodging business um, are now using their talents to seize bracket steel assets, not just from oligarchs, but whistleblowers and any other member of the public who opposes or is critical of Switzerland's leaders, its business and lawmakers are at the heart of it. So this is obviously a very uh, strong commentary. Trevor, we'll give it one last shot. You've just got two minutes just to comment on what I've given the audience there. Okay, well, I, I do say that it's um, it's law firms that are behind this, and um, there are, to be perfectly clear, there are 3,700 law firms in Zurich alone in Switzerland, and most of those work on um, foundations, family wealth, trusts, offshore structures. Um, so I would say, you know, the thing is, you, you mentioned earlier about this four million that was that was uh, seized or taken as a fee by the Swiss government while they unfroze several hundred millions. Um, the question for me would be, Brian, and for, for should be for public, I'd say, is that this raises a serious concern about who's making uh, these decisions and how they're being reached. You know, let's just fine the banks or the launderers and then then it should be all right. So I could take you through the process uh, of, of this laundering, this proportional method. Um, say the first uh, million that enters at the first level of the money laundering process is uh, a, a million uh, dollars. Then what, this, what the Swiss government would say was, 
Well, we've recognized 100,000 of this, 10%, as being uh, from criminal origins, but we don't recognize the other 900,000. It's unidentifiable for us. So every dollar that leaves this account uh, goes into a clean account. And so it, they, will, they will apply this proportional method to all the rest of the money that's passing through their banks. So this involves passing illicit funds through multiple share, uh, shell companies, and these layers can go up to 10 different layers. So it gets very complicated. Um, and then finally, it's integrated back into the system. So in essence, the, the Swiss Attorney General has perceived a tiny portion of that money as laundering money to be dirty. You know? Right. Trevor, Trevor, thank you for that. Uh, an amazing system. It's sort of proportional criminality. Uh, but you've raised that key question. We should be looking at policy and who it is that can make such bizarre uh, policy. Uh, while at the end of the day, it's obviously the investors, it's the public that suffer. Uh, we must move on from there, but you will be with us for extra time so the audience can join us again in extra to hear more of Trevor's analysis. Well, if you like what UK Column is doing, then please join us, become a subscriber. And apart from anything else, you can join in extra time and uh, join our community and discuss things with other like-minded and often very well-informed people. Uh, please have a look at the shop. There's always something of interest there. And of course, purchases help what we're doing. And everything we're doing is designed to be shared. The information is for sharing. So uh, obviously acknowledging UK Column, please do that and help spread the word. Now, Debbie, just very quickly, you've got your latest blog up. I have indeed uh, NHS real life experiences. Thank you to everybody that sends me their stories. Um, please check out my blog this week. And also, do you know what you've given Twitter permission to do? If not, read my blog this week. Thank you. OK, thank you for that. Uh, well, we've got an interview uh, going out uh, tomorrow, uh, which is Leon Creer joining me to look at architecture and big planning in this case, and including the linear super city of Neom, which is out in the Middle East. Uh, really very interesting interview. So do join us for that. Uh, David Scott is uh, being active. So this is uh, uh, seven o'clock Wednesday, the 6th of September, no to war demo, Glasgow Green. Um, uh, sorry, that uh, is the YouTube channel there on the 6th of September. Glasgow Green is Saturday, the 26th of August. So freeze your screen and have a look at that advert to make sure we've got it right. And uh, I couldn't resist this sent into the UK column. Welsh government giving people a warning that from the 17th of September uh, 2023, most 30 mile an hour speed limits will change to 20. Uh, my question is, is it 20 miles an hour or is it really 15 minutes as part of the agenda for 15 minute cities? We will see. Alex, I think this one is for you. You and Agenda 21 and the Great Reset. Some of our viewers, Brian, will know that Yuri Roshka, who was briefly the deputy prime minister of Moldova some years ago, has become prominent in the geopolitical commentary scene in uh, the free or alternative or new media. 
And uh, he's invited me along with a bunch of other interesting people, not as I'm calling myself interesting, but the others are, uh, to his own hometown, Kishinev, the capital of Moldova. And that's running over the weekend. I'll be there for the first day of that on the Saturday. The title is UN Agenda 21 and the Great Reset, subtitled The Fall from Liberalism to Technocracy and Transhumanism. He's a spectacularly well-read chap and has a healthy degree of scepticism about the financial plans of both West and East. Uh, closely aligned, I would say, in thinking with Ian Davis, so our regular viewers will know what kind of position he takes. Uh, there's a lot of debate about the BRICS at the moment, so I'll be reporting back as best I can, although not next week, alas, but sometime in the near future, to the UK column audience about what I learned from that uh, uh, conference. Uh, just to uh, fill people in on what's happening on the child sexualization matter, uh, thank you to Hugh, a regular visitor in Northern Ireland, for sending us this footage uh, from uh, last Sunday, the 3rd of September, if I remember the date right, um, which is Hands Off Our Children. You can see the banner there um, taking a stand for our children's future. And we're just going to play out a few seconds silently here uh, of the scope of this rally. And Belfast is not a huge city. And anyone's familiar with it will know that it's pretty close to City Hall and Europa Hotel and so on. You can see the banners here, Let Kids Be Kids, Hands Off Our Kids, Leave Our Kids Alone. Uh, something you'd more usually see in Eastern Europe. So it is heartening to see that this amount of interest has been roused, although, of course, Northern Ireland would be the place anywhere in the UK to get that degree of interest. And uh, just a very brief video segment to close out the uh, reports. Oh, but before that, sorry, yes, to report that Dr. Anna Lutfi's uh, um, interview has gone down very well uh, yesterday on uh, her legal case against the Department for Education uh, in the matter of child sexualization, the PSHE curriculum. Uh, that's a sneak preview of the fully hyperlinked transcript that I'm putting together, which is why it will take a day or two to get the video on the website. Um, I'll just give people a couple of quotations um, of what was said uh, during the live chat by our members as they listened to Dr. Lutfi. One said, once you understand that the end game is to diminish the sta status of the family, destroy the soul and make people dependent on the state, it all makes sense why. That is why PSHE is taught to small children. Another wrote, it seems to me that the schools are training young people to want services that they would never have needed or even dreamed about without this curriculum. It's, attack on, it's an attack on what makes our country great. Well, an American who feels the same way, sorry, I don't know the state or the school board, uh, did a trick which has been uh, pulled several times now across the West, reading to school boards, and most memorably by the Scottish Family Party chairman, Richard Lucas, uh, he did the same thing, reading to a school board the materials that they themselves allow into children's classrooms to sexualize them. Of course, this was America, so it ended with a threat of violence uh, rather than a bit of outrage. Uh, but here is the clip of an American father, I think he's a father, uh, pointing out to a school board what sexualization goes on in primary schools. Page 265. As if letting him finger me was going to cure all my problems, but I never thought he there away. And then he did. Continue. Stop brother, circle I want to stop you there. Like, I'm back to moving. Right. Take the video. That's right. Get it. 
Well, a short video clip that says it all, stand up and, and read out fact, tell the truth, and you are the one who will be removed from the meeting. And of course, that's happening in the States, it's happening in UK, and it's happening in many other Western cities. It is an attack on the family. Now, Debbie, you've got uh, some positive news for the UK column here with a video, and then you're going to take us on to COVID. And thank you to all of our viewers that sent us this. Um, Dr. Mike Yeadon was recently interviewed by Steve Kirsch. And as many will know, Dr. Mike Yeadon was vice president of uh, Pfizer uh, in the Allergy and Respiratory Research Division. And he's also a chief scientist. So when he was asked if he trusted the media, let's see what he said. Is there media that you consider reliable, like no. Epic Times, for example? No, no, not, not no. none of them. No. Uh, no, 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 no media. I'm not talking. I'm not talking just uh, mainstream media. I'm talking about oh. alternative media. You don't think there's any alternative media that's reliable? Oh, I see. Uh, I would say. I mean, I would recommend uh, UK column, capital U, capital K, space column, UK column. It's run by you know a couple of good people, and they source them. They are, I think, at least one of them is a one or maybe two. Yeah, two of them are professional journalists and one is a former British serviceman who realised that things were not well. And they were running UK column before COVID. Uh, and so they've got a wider span. Um, yeah, and I, I think they're, they're doing their earnest best. But I'm afraid all other, I think all main media, whether, whether it's TV, radio or print, um, I think there's virtually no independence of, of editorial so thank you, Dr. Mike Eden. So let's scoot on to COVID because, of course, the fear is ramping up and the UK uh, HSA are announcing that they're going to start more surveillance. Uh, interesting, isn't it? That term comes up again, surveillance. But uh, it's a profitable little business. And I've called this section uh, Cash for COVID, actually, because uh, BBC News are now reporting that COVID and flu winter jabs are to be brought forward in England. And that's my little graphic, 9-11. I'm just pointing out that these jabs are starting on the 11th of September and finishing on Halloween, aka the 31st of October. So how profitable is this little business? So I thought I'd go and have a look and I found a story about how much money GPs were being paid. So in addition to the £7.50, they're getting an extra £5. If you're housebound, it's gonna, they're going to get £10, but now an additional, 20, uh, an additional £10 making £20 for every home visit. But what I found most concerning was that care homes are going to be incentivized that for if they're fully vaccinated, they'll get a bonus of £200. So clearly the agenda is on to jab, jab, jab. But let's not forget, please, the risk assessment that the CDC have put out. We showed last, last week. So if we look at the risk assessment, we can see in the next slide, especially that there is no concern really more concern over this particular strain and clearly it says there it can be capable of causing infection in people who have previously had covid or have re received covid-19 vaccine oh wondering why about that because if you've had covid supposedly you have antibodies and if you've had the vaccine supposedly you're protected 
No. Um, and then just one more slide going on on a more jab campaign. Are you shingles ready? Don't be worrying about Christmas this year. You don't need to be Christmas ready. You need to be shingles ready. So if you're going to uh, check your phone, you might find that you've got a text from the NHS asking you if you'd like a shingles jab. So that's my little bit of jab news this week. Debbie, thank you very much for that. Well, Alex, let's bring you back in because, of course, if anybody's got any suspicions about the jab policy and is going to be asking questions, you are probably going to come under scrutiny by the government itself and the security services. Yes. Now, on Monday, David Scott uh, communicated some details of the inquiry going on in Edinburgh, uh, the COVID inquiry, as a devolved part of the United Kingdom. And the remark was made with some justification that if the Scottish COVID inquiry isn't going to do things because the London UK-wide inquiry is, then what's the point of the Scottish inquiry? Well, inquiries do throw up certain interesting gobbits, even if they are controlled operations. So here, the Daily Telegraph has uh, picked up on this, uh, that's two submissions by senior civil servants, one of them very high up, she's a DG, a director general, uh, indicate that uh, the counter disinformation unit has got the spooks on board. So the counter disinformation unit, as Mike Robinson reported at the time for UK column viewers, because he's eagle eyed on this, started off before COVID uh, reporting on what the American uh, parrot mach machine calls threats to our democracy. So it was allegedly thrown elections and so on. But come COVID, everyone went headless chicken and decided to get counter disinformation units uh, trained on so-called headless of medical misinformation at the same time as YouTube and all of the others did. Trouble is, and as the Telegraph was better than someone reporting on the details of, what Whitehall did uh, was bring in external companies, AI uh, gurus, probably behind the backs of my former colleagues in the intelligence services, uh, to, be, to be frank, um, to say uh, who is peddling the misinformation and the AI geniuses came back with uh, professors of, he of health who oppose universal jabbing, uh, professors of medicine, these are your bad guys. Well, anyway, the depositions now made by two, Susanna Story uh, and uh, uh, Sam Lister, uh, uh, have indicated uh, quite a lot of detail. Uh, they have a disinformation board of around 12 people. It includes members of the UK intelligence community. Most likely that would be one or two from each of MI5, MI6 and GCHQ, probably one each at a mid, maybe sub-director level, my guess. Um, they've got a, uh, it's 19 pages of witness statements that they've gleaned this from. Uh, and she has said, although it's not the first time we know this, that the chair of this of this um, uh, disinformation unit, uh, her day job role is Director of Security and Online Harms, an Orwellian title for government. Um, so the, um, the other uh, person who gave similar testimony is a former Times journalist who was drafted into the Department for Culture, Media and Sport, DCMS, as is the way these days. And that is illustrative of the the, the, the composition of the, the unit, because although we were told in the past classified too sensitive for the people to know, we now know from these depositions and other related statements, as reported by The Telegraph, that there's about 25 core staff on this unit, and it can be augmented to 50 by seconding people in in a crisis. So that is rather a lot of people training themselves specifically on the likes of UK Column, and we don't flatter ourselves, we're all the centre of the attention, people like Dr. Mike Eden and a professor that was mentioned from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, Dr. Alexander de Figueiredo. These were the kinds of people who ended up being cracked down upon. Probably not directly the fault of MI5, MI6 and GCHQ, but their seniors went along with it. 
Alex, thank you very much for that. Well, let's hop across to the subject of Ukraine. On Monday, Mike Robinson, uh, <coughs> excuse me, mentioned the dismissal of the defence minister Reznikov. So we'll just uh, recap on this a little bit. Uh, there he is looking very tired and stressed as well he might, I think, with the war going on. So this was uh, Kiev Independence Report saying that uh, uh, basically uh, Zelensky had announced his decision to dismiss Ukrainian Defence Minister Reznikov, uh, adding that the motion will be put to the vote in the Rada. So glad to see the parliament comes in there somewhere. Uh, but then the key bit is that uh, he's set to be replaced by 41-year-old Rustem Umarov, the chairperson of the State Property Fund of Ukraine. And this was really uh, a key bit that I wanted to get into. But before we do that, let's have a look at a little video clip from the Kiev Independent, where they're talking about Reznikov and uh, corruption in Ukraine. Hi everyone, my name is Anastasia Lapatina and you're watching This Week in Ukraine, a video podcast from the Kiev Independent. Every week, I sit down with one of my newsroom colleagues to dive into Ukraine's most pressing issues. And this time, we're talking about yet another corruption scandal inside Ukraine's Ministry of Defense. I'm joined by the Kiev Independent investigative reporter Danilo Mokrek. Danilo, welcome back to the show. Glad to be here again. The latest scandal is all about jackets. There is an issue of the inflated price, there yes. is uh, a question about quality, and there is a really big question of potential corruption and conflict of interest. No fun time for, for the Ministry of Defense. And it's not the first time, actually, that uh, the communication by Mr. Reznikov is disastrous. The defense minister was just caught lying, publicly lying. Ukraine is not unprecedentedly corrupt and uh, it's not uh, incomparably corrupt. This is simply not true. They are sending us, us to death, uh, all the while stealing public money. So, so much in that little clip, I'm just going to say very quickly that uh, uh, the war is going disastrously for Ukraine. There is no doubt about that. No progress on the counteroffensive. Get rid of the defence minister, but also make sure that he's hammered. He's the bad man because he started to talk out about certain problems. Uh, he's going to be removed. He's called a liar. And then what better place to send the liar than as ambassador to UK? Alex, uh, very quickly, because I'm clock watching at the moment, uh, what's your comment on that little clip? Uh, apart from the impeccable idiomatic English of the young Ukrainians, which is the best in Eastern Europe now by a mile, uh, sincere. Uh, Ukrainians you know, are not given in professional contexts to speak so frankly, especially to give away their, uh, to wash their dirty linen to outsiders. Uh, I take it as serious. And of course, it comes at a time when not only Reznikov has been fired for allegedly uh, overseeing or, or, or turning a blind eye to corruption, uh, but also Kolomoisky, the tycoon mastermind who uh, brought the current president to power, has suddenly been arrested. Could it be that Ukraine is wanting to be, a, be seen to be cleaning up its act so as to please Euro-American sponsors before the next round of support? Yes, could it be? OK, well, let's just uh, finish very, very quickly here. Um, having a look at the replacement who was heading, heading up the State Property Fund of Ukraine. Encourage people to go and have a look at this website because it tells us so much. These are some of the, co the comments last year. The State Property Fund consolidated over 65% of all assets in the country. 400 entrepreneurs brought, uh, bought 
abandoned state properties last year. The land bank is the second main product which will lease state agricultural land via transparent online auctions. And the initiative, those auctions, is set to generate several hundred thousand hectares of land and several billion dollars in revenue for the annual budget. Those are quotes from Umarov himself. Um, I'm asking the question, is he being brought in to defence in order to smooth the passage for the privatisation of what remains of Ukraine? We will see. Uh, this is um, the bit that you mentioned, Kolomoisky, uh, Alex. So headline again from the Kiev Independent. And um, it's talking about him being charged with fraud and laundering to the value of $13.5 million. Uh, but if I add this one in, um, uh, we've got here, sorry, this, this one I believe is yours. Many apologies. Text platforms to delay patching security fixes. Well, there could be a bit of a bridge in there, Brian, potentially, because uh, it is um, governments not wanting to be uh, spotted doing uh, with, with, with untoward situations. So Reclaim the Net, which is, I think, by far the best site for at least covering and writing up other people's pieces and links to them, reports that the UK government wants tech platforms to, this is a really, you know, crossing the Rubicon here, to delay patching security fixes for people who don't follow their computers closely to patch is to send out a package that says, uh, we spotted a vulnerability in your video app. Here's a software update, right? These patches must be withheld when the programmers know that you could be hacked so that it can maintain spying backdoors. Obviously, that's not in so many words in there, uh, but the detail is found uh, in Just Security, uh, which I put on screen here. Uh, which uh, reports that it's an update to the notices regime, which is, you know, uh, the secret letters that come from the government to telecom operators, or in these days, it's more software owners, usually based in uh, in California or outside the UK. We already have the habit under a previous iteration of the framework law here, which is the regulatory, the Investigatory Powers Act 2016. We already had these pretensions of extraterritoriality uh, telling people, you know, you're in California or India, but you must do or or, with, or or not do what we say. We've now extended it to the point where, uh, you know, we're, we're telling people, uh, the government is telling people, we think it's proportionate to withhold this back, uh, this this uh, update, so that your granny can have her bank account robbed, for example, as a consequence. But that's a proportional and acceptable consequence, so that His, Majesty, His Majesty's government can carry on spying on uh, whatever targets of interest there are. Um, I think this is also mine, isn't it? The Ministry of Justice tracking journalists who make information requests. Uh, another shocker. And again, the Times, although a very um, uh, easygoing paper on the establishment generally, uh, is quite uh, put out this time. It's the usual reason, which is that you don't do it. You, you, you mustn't cross papers by getting their own people involved. Here, George Greenwood, who's a noted data journalist at the Times, uh, was had his nose put out of joint by people writing things behind the scenes, and he got uh, wind of them through a, a subject access request, SAR, which is like an FOI, except in this case it's, I want to know what you have about me. You must cough up all the, all the files. What they found in brief uh, is that the actual civil servants, the proper government employees, were seeing, ah, uh, Mr. Greenwood, or dare I say Mike Robinson, uh, is making some interesting FI requests. We're going to break the uh, information commissioner's uh, standing orders, and we're going to do some opposition research, some data digging on this guy. So there's there's a trail there that Greenwood has picked up, which involves even people saying, ah, this one has to go to the political appointees. Just a reminder, nod, nod, wink, wink, we mustn't do any special research, but we can put together a nice dossier on everything we happen to know about him. 
Yeah. <clears throat> yes. It's not wise to ask questions, is it, in uh, 2023 in the UK? Some democracy. Uh, well, let's uh, uh, move over to Canada and the uh, forest fires. Now, I just wanted to say that the full interview um, was finished, but it's going to have some additional information inserted. So watch out for this one going up on the UK Column website. Brenda from Shuswap reporting on the Canadian forest fires, a really amazing lady. Uh, but thanks to connectivity between the local community, I've also been pointed at this website, North Shuswap Firestorm 2023. And here is a phenomenal picture of the fire approaching a house, which I have to say did survive. Uh, but in this uh, website, we get more information that the fires were caused by lightning starting on the west side of Adams Lake on July the 12th and then they grew slowly until it suddenly exploded in size on July the 20, 20th due to a windstorm. So there's quite a lot of detail there. And this one is a point that Brenda was uh, making to me in the interview, but it was difficult for me to grasp the sheer size of it. She was talking about a um, a backburn uh, where the authorities were trying to clear an area to slow down the main fire. But the wind changed and then the backburn fire, and you can see the uh, size of it by the smoke going up into the sky. This fire itself then started to threaten homes in the local area. And ultimately, some hundred homes, cabins and businesses were destroyed. Now, a lot of effort went in by local people. Another excellent photo from the website and uh, a couple of questions which I just decided to put up. Um, so locals saying that due to roadblocks, they were having to use boats to get in and out. Brenda commented on that as well. And so locals were puzzled as to why the authorities hindered their access when they were trying to look after each other and in some cases fight the fire. And then uh, 11, the overall problem is that both the provincial and federal governments have misplaced priorities that continue to continue to fund oil and gas infrastructure to the tune of billions of dollars rather than giving support to the community to fight fires. But it does also say there uh, uh, to respond to climate boiling emergency. And I was interested in that. Here's a picture of some of the devastation afterwards. And uh, I'd encourage you to go and have a look at Jim Cooperman's site because he's done a great deal of work. But around the world, oh, Around the world, we've got other fires and different commentaries. And thank you very much to the UK Column Viewer for flagging up the express. Greek fires, uh, Greek fire wasn't climate change, it was arsonists, but they don't want you to know that. So this is quite a surprising article because it's really challenging what we're being told about uh, global boiling. Um, the end of the article says this, the action was fire starting. The justice in the inverted world in which we're rapidly sinking is the act of murdering men, women and children indiscriminately, artificially risking physical devastation and humiliating a whole nation in order to prop up an increasingly discredited theory of man-made climate change. So think about that and perhaps we ought to be commenting to that journalist. But here's the Telegraph with real problems because Trudeau, whose government's clearly failed to help tackling the fires, um, is in the middle of woke agenda. And one minute the Telegraph is for him and one minute they're against him. 
And uh, lastly, I'll put this one up. This is CBC News talking about the Maui fire. Uh, Native Hawaiians um, think that they're going to lose their culture as a result of these fires. And they're particularly flagging up uh, the fact that real estate people are moving in to buy up the property. So, uh, Alex, that brings us back to you and the subject of the Anti-Defamation League. Yes, Brian. Uh, thou shalt not mention the Anti-Defamation League used to be the rule, but their grip is slipping. Uh, they started off, of course, as the Anti-Defamation League of the Bene Berit. So that is, well, if a free translation from the Hebrew would be the pledged men. The Bene Berit were a very nasty organization indeed, if you look at them. Uh, but by the time of the First World War, they had clubbed together to form an Anti-Defamation League uh, over a very disputed claim that a, a Jewish man had been falsely accused uh, of uh, a rape and murder of a girl. Uh, of course, a very regrettable lynching happened, which I certainly wouldn't condone, but uh, that was the origins of the ADL. Nobody seems to know that background anymore. They just think think of it as the people who decide what's good to say. Now, Elon Musk has uh, decided to come out swinging. Uh, he's become particularly enamoured of uh, a brave uh, Irish journalist and campaigner, Keith Woods, and he's retweeted him quite serially recently, such as here, uh, when Woods is saying the ADL's favourite tactic is financially blackmailing social media companies. Of course, that's why Musk is interested as owner of Twitter or X, blackmailing them into removing free speech on their platforms. They have no legal power, but they have the power of blackmail. They even orchestrated an advertiser boycott of Tucker Carlson. That's their go-to um, technique now. Uh, their, their technique of choice is, is to tell advertisers, you're supporting Jew haters, you must pull out of Twitter. Well, Musk, first of all, said this, that because he knows advertisers avoid controversy, all the ADL need to do to crush our Western ad revenue, he knows that Asia is different, is to make unfounded accusations. You hate Jews, right? So this controversy causes advertisers in, in modern American mealy mouth parlance to pause, which means to pull out without saying you're pulling out. So uh, he said that that's the relationship they've had with Twitter for many years, uh, this, this, this uh, constant cat and mouse blackmail. Uh, he says, presumably, they have that with all Western search, that's maybe Google or social media like Facebook organizations. Uh, people got very enthusiastic about this and said, could you please consider releasing the communications that you had and your predecessors at Twitter had uh, with the ADL so we can see what's going on? This would be a once in a century opportunity. Musk replied, great point. A giant data dump would clear the air. Now, the judge um, in a Colorado defamation suit has fined the ADL uh, for defamation. And this, too, was picked up on by Elon, retweeting ALX, who said, oh, this isn't the first time this, is, uh, this has happened. And, and uh, Musk replies, well, I'm suing them for $22 billion because that's half the value of the company. This now getting serious. And just en passant, this is how ridiculous things get. Sorry, it's cut off at the top of the screen. But Kanekoa, the great and notorious uh, and, and useful tweeter, says that the ADL regards all the numbers on screen in those two rows of text as hate numbers. All the numbers 1 to 11. Uh, 33, 88, 18, etc. They're all hate numbers. Now, um, this came to a head with Keith Woods himself participating in a video uh, or a, a conference call with audio only, but we have video of it, where several people were getting together to say, what is the truth of the matter? Uh, you will see in a moment at the top right hand side of the uh, right hand corner of the screen, you'll see Keith Woods's avatar. Towards the bottom right, you will see that of the former Canadian ambassador to Israel. Uh, who is a dual citizen. At the beginning of the call, she is having a mank, as we would say, uh, at the beginning of this segment. She's saying, people uh, really accuse me of split loyalties because I have a, a dual citizenship. I'm an Israeli passport holder too. How dare you? Listen to how Keith Woods comes back at her. 
have already messaged me on Twitter saying, you know, oh, well, we know which side you're on, don't we? Um, oh, a dual citizen. Ergo, dual Canadian-Israeli citizen. Therefore, she can't be trusted, can she? Oh, I get this. I get messages. Any of the people who wrote those messages have the integrity to speak up now and tell me? Why well, Vivian, I have a question. If we're talking about conflicts of interest, uh, is it true you work for an Israeli intelligence firm called Black Cube? No, who are you? No. Keith Woods. Nice to meet you. I get accused of being yeah, outside really, every time I pop into his face. I, th- I think we're going back yeah. to, the, to the moving away. Moving well, away. No, it's on, it's on our Wikipedia. So you see, she booted herself off the call at that, and it appears that she then deleted her previously very fanfaring Twitter page, her whole account. Uh, it's hardly uh, in some nutter in the corner that's claiming this. Let's go to CBC, Canada's public broadcaster, uh, as revered there as the BBC is in Britain, at least by the, uh, the the establishment. CBC was openly reporting in 2021 uh, that the ambassador in question, Vivia Berkovici, when she stepped down from her ambassadorial appointment in Tel Aviv, went to work for Black Cube. Uh, it's all a bit strange. Why would she say no and get flustered and, uh, and flounce off the call? Uh, a bit of background, and I'm deliberately using quite um, hard right sites here because precisely because they were the only people who noticed the ADL and spoke about them for previous decades and now they're encroaching further. So I make no apologies for recommending this. Counterpunch a decade ago had the piece ADL spies about Israel's use of ADL people in the Middle East against Arab countries. And Imperium Press says Elon versus the ADL colon a Rubicon moment question mark, saying that Mosque is between a rock and a hard place. If he has the cojones, they say, uh, he could really uh, do some harm to the ADL. Otherwise, they will have his guts for garters. And he suggests, the author of this piece, that it could end in assassination if Musk doesn't follow through. Okay. Well, this is a terribly important subject, Alex. There's no doubt about that. It is very controversial, but it's got to be spoken about because otherwise we can have groups um, censoring the news for their entire personal satisfaction. So we need to stay on it. Okay, where does that take us to? Debbie, I think, and uh, freedom and standing in the park. Yes, I'm putting out the call for action because I'm honestly having a fantastic time going to Stand in the Park. So you can go to find find out your local group. You can go to the Stand in the Park website um, and, you know, it's in the park. So bring the kids. It's been lovely weather. It's just fantastic. And if I hadn't have gone to my Stand in the Park, I wouldn't have seen what Cornwall were doing. And um, I didn't know that Cornwall and the Isles of Scilly are the first UK rural and island region to carry out a local energy plan. So I found the leaflets extremely helpful. And you can see that there's going to be um, like a, 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 a travel show going on and they're going to be talking about it. I'll be going to the one in Bodmin on the 25th of September. So this is, uh, this is very important information. But you know what? Don't take my word for it. Have a look for yourself. So here we are on a Sunday. This is Debbie Evans, UK column, reporting for Stand in the Park. Yay! Yay! Wave to the camera, everybody. And tell us in one word, should we go to our local Stand in the Parks? Yes! I think that's fairly uh, definitive. Right, let's go across to Diane. Diane, tell us about Stand in the Park, how long you've been coming to Truro 
stand in the park? Uh, just over two years we've been coming here and um, I think it's really important because it's a great hub for shared knowledge and skills and a positive way of moving forward in the future. Thank you so much, Diane. And let's go to Paul because we're learning loads from Paul because Paul's the CB radio ham. He knows everything. Paul, Hi there. tell us about Stand in the Park. I think it's important because um, people can feel alone. You know, they have these, they, they know that something's going on in the world and they can feel alone, but they, they don't need to feel alone. Mm -hmm. Come along here and meet like-minded people every Sunday at 10 o'clock. And also get the news. Thank you, Paul. Also to get the news and all the latest um, well, carryings on from our government. Howard, let's meet Howard. Howard, hello. Tell us about Stand in the Park. Uh, Stand in the Park is a, uh, an international organisation um, and there has a website and you can drill down into country, into region, into town, find your nearest park meetup, which is like 10 o'clock, and it will tell you where, you where you can meet. And it's just, uh, I think in this country and around the world, we've, we've lost the sense of community. So we, it's about building connections and also about empowering ourselves so that we become uh, powerful as a community rather than giving away our power to large institutions we don't know who the people are. And that's absolutely right. And it's also, do you think it's important to connect with local people as well in your own area? Yeah, so finding out who's in your street, who's in your town, who you can rely on. And uh, yeah, and just building building strength in, in, in small communities again. We've kind of lost that, I think. We have, you're right. And I'm just going to scoot back to Diane very quickly for the last word. Diane, I'm going to come to you for the last word because I want you to tell people what they can get from Stand in the Pot because I today have learned heaps. I've learned about CB radios. I've learned about water distillers. I've learned about tenor in the tin. What are the kind of things that we can learn about here at Stand in the Park? We do various kinds of survival skills and there's lots of people here with great knowledge about sharing and house views and um, all sorts of things and ways to move forward in the future where um, we can all help each other. So that is why Stand in the Park is so important. Ladies, gentlemen, say goodbye and sort of say hello to everybody from UK <laughs> Column to our audience. And it's Debbie Evans from UK Column signing off. Thank you so much, everybody. Say goodbye, everyone. Bye. Honestly, it's such a it's such a lovely morning. Um, so thank you so much to everyone in Truro. But please send us your stories from wherever you are around the country. Um, and a quick advert, please, for Sunday in Rygate at Priory Park, Rygate. They're having an amazing event with um, lots of... <laughs> and if you're around that area and you're in Surrey or surrounding areas please do turn up it's a great event brilliant Debbie thank you very much for that and a big thank you to all the people standing up in their parks around the country this is so important to get people coming together supporting each other and uh, of course saying no to what they don't like in the policies that our governments are throwing in we must end there thank you all very much for joining us wherever you are in the world and if you're a subscriber of uk column we'll be back in a few minutes uh, for extra so join us then and we should have trevor kitchen back with us see you then bye bye <laughs>